caffeine increases the level of cortisol in the body. And it's however your individual body then that allows you to process and re-regulate that is dependent on your biology. So where we see some people are able to consume caffeine and have issues, there are people like me who are very much affected. <laughs> Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And we always recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. This is the show no one wants to hear, but everyone asks me about. I know you love your coffee. You've seen the title of the show and you know that I have given up coffee and it feels like a logical progression after talking about how impactful reducing my alcohol consumption was to then address the other thing that has had the biggest impact on my health in a positive way, and that's quitting caffeine. Just like alcohol having been an occasional thing for me, I didn't have a daily coffee. In fact, I drank half-calf about five times a week or an Americano because the dark espresso helped me feel better, like process the caffeine better. In even then, I could feel anxiety increasing from caffeine, which we'll talk about more. It also made me jittery, yet I kept drinking it. And so what does all that mean? I know, don't freak out. I won't lie, the transition off of caffeine did feel like exhaustion. It was really short-lived, honestly. It was a detox process that if you can do over spring break, summer vacation, the holidays, where you can take naps when you're tired, you will feel so much better. But why? Why would we even give up our beloved coffee? Trust me, I love coffee. I loved like tasting different coffee beans from different regions of the world and all that stuff. And honestly, you can still enjoy all of that occasionally. Or, you know, if you don't have a cortisol problem, if you don't have an anxiety problem, maybe you don't have to worry about it at all. We're going to talk about all of that testing later in the show, but I want to first explain. So caffeine increases cortisol secretion. And I do so much for my health, especially my immune health, yet my cortisol was high and sabotaging all of that effort. So one simple solution changed all of that. Cortisol is the primary stress hormone. It increases sugars, glucose in the bloodstream, and enhances your brain's use of glucose and increases the ability of substances that repair tissues. So we can see how on an irregular basis, this could be really helpful to your brain function. The problem is that cortisol also curbs functions that would be non-essential or harmful in a fight or flight situation. So it's a steroid hormone that regulates a wide range of vital processes throughout the body, including metabolism and immune response. So if your cortisol is elevated all the time, then you're constantly in this fight or flight response where all of your other 
systems and organs aren't operating at an optimal way. It literally can't because your body is prioritizing different functions. For me, I knew that cortisol was a hormone that I couldn't change quickly. It took usually two to three months to see an impact after making changes. And it was almost exactly two months after I swapped coffee for smoothies that I saw results. This was for the first time in my life because, I, I mean, I started testing about a decade ago and I know it's been high my whole life because my mother has the same issue. In fact, I thought that we may have Cushing's disease, which is why it's important to work with a medical professional and test. I don't guess. I cannot recommend enough that you take control of your own health, but also partner with a medical professional who understands things more and listens to you and, you know, all of those things. Yes. But don't just guess and think. I know so many people are like, oh, I have adrenal problems. Like, how do you know that? A lot of people assume that they have adrenal issues, but how do you know that? Knowing if your cortisol is high or low or actually fine is going to make a huge difference. Maybe your energy concerns are related to your thyroid or something else entirely. So I started using at-home tests to check on my nutrient levels. And one of the things that it reported was high cortisol. That's when I originally started thinking of all the things that it's affecting my immune system. And while I was really focused on resolving my long COVID symptoms, because, you know, I had them for so long and I wasn't getting the relief that I was looking for, I knew that it was something that I wanted to prioritize. If I'm being honest, it wasn't easy, but I'm going to tell you how I ended up making it work for me because I think it'll be easier for you. And it wasn't hard. It's not as awful as you think that it might be. Maybe you skip a cup of coffee one day and you get a terrible headache and you're like, oh, I can't live like that forever. That is going to pass. I knew I needed a quick coffee, but decided to do it a bit differently. So instead of just switching to decaf, which I feel like a lot of people do, what I decided to do made like a game changing difference. And ultimately, it's what drove me to making the health tweaks that reduced my symptoms associated with long haulers. And given all the effort that I make towards my health, I really can't complain that like this one thing, caffeine, was something that I needed to prioritize for immune support. Because like I said, elevated cortisol is literally limiting your body's ability to function properly. And we're all living in a very stressful world, whether it's traffic, whether it's taxes, whether it's four kids, two dogs, and two foster dogs. I don't even want to talk about the life choices I'm making right now. Like whatever it is that's stressing you, if your body is in flight or fight and you don't get your cortisol into a healthy, normal range, then specifically where we see this affecting people's health is their immune system, their reproductive health. And you know that your sex hormones affect way more than just your ability to reproduce and your metabolic and digestive health. So all of those are sacrificed as being unnecessary. I always think of it like when the lion is chasing the zebra, you know, when you're watching like one of those animal shows and the zebra literally goes to the bathroom while running. That's an everybody out moment. That's your body being stressed and being like, we do not need this in here. It's slowing us down. It's, you know, get it out to optimize our ability to literally flee from this thing that is stressing us out. So 
you don't want your body to be in a constant state of being chased by wild beasts because it's going to derail and undo all of the effort you are working on. And I really wish that I had fully understood all of this and taken it to heart because I tweaked and tweaked my diet for so long and none of it was helpful if I wasn't focusing on the stress and the cortisol the way that I really need to. Listen, I didn't want to let go either. I hear you. And if you're suffering from fatigue, insomnia, sleep issues, cravings, mood swings, anxiety, or general weirdness, wouldn't it be worth a try to see if reducing or eliminating your caffeine might help you? I think the biggest aspect of that for me that made the biggest difference, though, is not giving in to the crutches. Don't just switch to decaf and put sweetener in it for an energy boost. Don't switch to a tea that has caffeine for an energy boost. It's to really help your body re-regulate with circadian rhythms and restoring your energy naturally through sleep, different kinds of things like that to really get to the other side of feeling so much better. And if you do have cortisol dysregulation, that's how to get it back into a helpful, healthy, normal range potentially. So the other thing that I want to talk about is the way that caffeine increases our anxiety. And for me, I've talked before about how, especially during quarantine and since, whether it was long haulers, whether it's menopause, whether it's just collective trauma, I went on anti-anxiety medication and was experiencing a lot of anxiety. And so I am really interested to see how caffeine has increased anxiety and can bring on panic attacks in studies because I have such clarity around life and myself and understanding my and other people's anxiety, like the self-awareness that has just kind of hit me in the last year. I could not have anticipated. I didn't realize how much it was lacking before. And I definitely attribute a lot of that to the changes that I've made, including reducing caffeine. So when I was looking at research, I found a meta-analysis, and you've heard us talk before on the podcast about how powerful those are from 2022, so very recent research that showed that when they took partitioned out a group of people who had um, panic attack disorder, so they had anxiety that had resulted in a panic attack previously, and they partitioned them out into placebo of caffeine or actual caffeine, that 51% of the patients who had actual caffeine experienced a panic attack following the caffeine. 50%, 51%, but none, not a single patient after the placebo. That was incredibly powerful for me to see how activating that caffeine is to our cortisol, which then is impacting anxiety. They also talked about in this analysis, six studies that showed when compared to healthy controls, so people who did not have panic disorder, patients were more vulnerable for, pa for panic attacks following caffeine by 54%. So even not just looking at people who are prone to it, we see a huge impact on how our anxiety and potential for panic attack ramps up after consumption. And one study showed an increase in anxiety in 92% of patients following caffeine. 
this was like a self-reported analysis that people were doing. And they were even able to have the self-awareness of their own anxiety increasing 92% of people following the consumption of caffeine. There was another study from 2008 that moderate caffeine in healthy individuals could allow the cortisol secretion response to be regulated by the body system. However, in those with health conditions, or if they repeated dosing later, so if you're having multiple, maybe you have coffee and then you have a soda or you have a second cup of coffee, like for me, I would have decaf in the afternoon instead of half-calf in the morning. So I would have multiple dosings. Then the dysregulation was retained. So the cortisol wasn't able to re-regulate itself properly. They were able to see that caffeine increases the level of cortisol in the body. And it's however your individual body then that allows you to process and re-regulate that is dependent on your biology. So where we see some people are able to consume caffeine and have issues, there are people like me who are very much affected. <laughs> and then there was another 2008 study that specifically looked at the effects of caffeine when consumed during periods of stress, and they included both exercise and mental stress, and they specifically targeted looking at the differences in men and women. This study was so fascinating to me because it's so hard to find studies that look specifically at women's biology. And so often when we're looking at um, studies where a cortisol response is perceived as a potential positive thing, it's often studied on men. So in this case, the results were not great for the ladies. Caffeine enhanced our stress response. And of course, we see it in both men and women, but the men, it caused a stimulation in their central nervous system, as we would expect. And it was impinging on that hypothalamic pituitary adrenocortical axis, the HPA axis. But it did not linger the same way that it did for women, where it appeared to interact with their metabolic mechanisms, not just the HPA axis. So we didn't see that it was affecting men's metabolism. In fact, oftentimes a caffeine is recommended for exercise as a way to glycogen supply your muscles and process glucose and all that kind of stuff. And so for men, we can see that has potential positive impact if the body's able to re-regulate the cortisol. But for women, it did not interact the same way. It had a negative metabolic effect. And so if you are drinking coffee as a female or you know, consuming caffeine as a female, maybe you're taking pre-workout, you might want to look at the study. Of course, I'll put the links in the show notes because really fascinated me to see how a woman's body was differently affected than a man's. And if you're intentionally consuming pre-workout, it might not have the positive effect that you think that it does. I know for me, I would often have a square of dark chocolate because there's a little bit of caffeine, a little bit of healthy fats. And I felt really good to not have heavy food in my system while I worked out, but then eat after. And so I know I was giving myself caffeine, but I did not, I never took pre-workout. I did not drink a lot of caffeine and I tried to limit it even before all of this because I knew it was pro problematic for me. That said, even with all of that kind of like minor consumption and adjustment, if all of this is stressing you out, let me tell you about the positives. <laughs> 
This podcast is sponsored by Care Of. Finally, a collagen brand I can point you to that is tested for safety and with a discount code. You know I love collagen in my morning smoothies. You've heard me talk about it on this show. And not all brands are what they seem. Finding one that met my needs was critical to feeling my best. I am always skeptical of supplement brands because of what I know about the lack of regulation in the industry. But I was pleasantly surprised when I researched Care Of and found they are both committed to quality and sustainability. And best of all, their products are tested three times throughout their supply chain in the United States. And this ensures products meet exacting specifications and that they're safe. Think thoughtfully curated products, not tons and tons of things you don't really need or want. All formulated with care. Get it? Pun intended. Care of creates products that are effective for your body as possible. They start with a foundation of scientific research, which you know I love, choosing ingredients based on the science that backs them up. And then they take care to use the forms of each nutrient that are easiest for your body to digest and absorb. So here's what makes them really unique. You start by taking an online quiz about your general health and nutritional needs. And I answered really honestly. I am so impressed that the quiz came back focused on my brain health and not a bunch of stuff that I didn't need. I am currently taking their Focus Blend as well as their Collagen. The Focus Blend, unlike most brain supplements I've looked into, does not have caffeine. Can I say that loud enough? Can you hear me in the back? A caffeine-free brain blend, say that three times fast, and collagen both tested for safety. Y'all, they have lemon passion fruit collagen too. It is so good in smoothies, especially added to berries. I'm such a sucker for passion fruit. Yes, another pun. And it has prebiotic fiber and hydrating coconut water powder added in the flavor as well. Or you could just get the plain, which has one ingredient, but both are gluten-free, non-dairy, non-GMO. You can try... All of this yourself, 50% off your first care of order. Go to takecareof.com and enter code WHOLEVIEW50. That's careof.com, spelled C-A-R-E-O-F.com for half off. So if you want to make a change, it's easier than I thought. And I felt so much better once my body had adapted so much better. Like my mood stabilization, my energy is just so much better. So the positives is that since I'm not taking coffee with collagen and cream anymore in the mornings, I now get hungry. I've re-regulated my metabolism to be aligned with my circadian rhythms. And I actually want to eat a nourishing breakfast. And instead of forcing myself to wind down it the evenings, like at midnight, I am putting myself to bed before my teens. <laughs> and I'm having energy throughout the day. I do not have that three o'clock slump or anything like that. My moods are more stable, which let's be honest, is really what's best for everybody. I find it so much easier to re-regulate myself rather than kind of leaning on a crutch of, you know, a food or a beverage or something like that, that would have been something that I turned to before. I think that's really what made the biggest difference is that if you lean on a crutch, your body will continue to maladapt. You will ride the wave of exhaustion instead of addressing it. And so that's why I suggest maybe planning this around the holidays when you can take naps. But if you just swap one crutch for another, you won't be able to make 
qualitative change to the root cause of the issue. So my biggest suggestion is that if you want, if you start to taper, quit caffeine, and then you end up wanting sugar, take a nap. When you really want decaf coffee, take a nap. When you want tea, take a nap. (laughs) Seriously, when your body is giving you these clues of tiredness, listen to them. It is telling you it's tired. Sleep is the only way to get over that slump to normalize energy on the other side. And after, I don't know, a week or two, like I was so much better, so much more regulated. And then after a few months, once I saw the results that I wanted from seeing my cortisol come back into a normal range, I was able to reintroduce minor amounts of caffeine by having an enjoyable decaf coffee or tea once or twice a week, always with food. And now it means so much more to me. I'm fully enjoying it. When I have a bubble tea or when I have a decaf coffee, like it feels special and enjoyable and I enjoy the flavor and experience because separately I'm having a nourishing breakfast that my body is craving and telling me that it wants. I'm having more meaningful sleep. I'm having better hormone regulation and clear thoughts. My long COVID symptoms I no longer have. That is, if that's the one thing to take away today, tell someone who has long COVID symptoms to come listen to the show because if they work with a medical professional and get their, if their inflammation is high and their cortisol is high, this could be huge for them. And my desire to hydrate with different substances really changed. I now drink a ton of water instead of wanting coffee or craving decaf. Like I crave mineral water. It is a 100 amazing electrolyte source of energy and my body wants it because it's nourishing it with minerals instead of coffee, which can be dehydrating. It's the opposite effect. And while my singular goal was to quit coffee, I ended up as a result drinking more water, getting better sleep, eating more fruits and vegetables. So when all around and my cortisol is normal. I mean, I feel like I'm the poster child of give this a try. And while we didn't talk about any of these factors in the original episode 379 where we talked about coffee, I wanted to revisit it because now that my cortisol is in a normal range, it is a huge win-win. And I think that it's really important that if we're going to talk about this topic, that we address this element of it. It has been literally life-changing for me and a huge impact on my health. And I think that it's really important to share as we discuss the science from Sarah Ballantyne, PhD, previous co-host and friend, that we also look at the impact that this could be having in a very different sort of way. Matt has taken a stab at recalling the information and the science together for you here on our episode 379. If you didn't originally listen to it, hopefully this is a continuation of the conversation. And without further ado, I give you Matt's edited shorter version of episode 379 for more science on coffee from Sarah Ballantyne, PhD, and previous co-host of The Whole View. Don't miss the end where I will wrap us up and tell you what to expect on the Patreon of this unusual show. This podcast is sponsored by Earth Breeze, my new laundry detergent, Eco Sheets, that 
look just like dryer sheets, but they're not. It is a revolutionary liquidless laundry detergent that dissolves 100% in any wash cycle, hot or cold. No measuring, no mess, no heavy jugs, just toss in the sheet. I know what you're all going to ask. Yes, most importantly, you still get powerfully clean. Earth Breeze is tough on stains, fights odors, and your clothes come out clean every time. I have four teenagers, y'all. We take laundry very seriously. And previously, I was using laundry pods or drops, but I have since learned that the plastic that encased them doesn't actually just disappear. It becomes microplastic that then goes into our water pipes. It feels like there's always something when we work on sustainability. So I found Earth Breeze, which has really made the whole concept of detergent better, better biodegradable packaging, sensitive skin friendly and fragrance free option, and compatible with high efficiency washers, gray water systems, septic safe, you name it. If you're still using massive plastic jugs, this is your sign to stop. 91% of those inconvenient, awkward, heavy jugs just end up in landfills, oceans, harming our planet and marine life. There is a better way. Despite my every effort to manifest magic, it's not like you can just stop doing laundry. So switch to Earth Breeze. Don't just take my word for it. You can try it yourself with their risk-free 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't like it, Earth Breeze will give you a full refund. No questions asked and no return policy. They offer flexible subscriptions that can be adjusted, paused, or canceled by you at any time. No contractor fees delivered right to your door via a carbon neutral shipping at a frequency that you set that works for your unique lifestyle. Switch from the old fashioned goo to something new. Right now, listeners can subscribe to Earth Breeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash whole view to get started. That's earthbreeze.com slash whole view for 40% off. earthbreeze.com slash whole view. Sarah, I'm ready for the science. To me, it's a really exciting hot topic. And it's one of those things, you know, so coffee is actually the second most consumed beverage in the world after water, which does what? not surprise me in the slightest. I'm honestly right? surprised. I would have thought tea. Are you? Yeah. I mean, so many cultures make tea. Coffee is actually more consumed than tea. And, I, you know, I started drinking coffee every morning when I was 14. I have for a long time referred to it as my comfort in a cup. And so, it, you know, for me, if I was like, oh, yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Water and then coffee and then tea. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And it actually, I mean, like it is there. I mean, there are some fascinating novels about, you know, like the early coffee trade. Like it is, it, you know, it is the type of, you know, thing that the British Empire expanded over. Right. Like it's just, you know, it's a major trade commodity as well. There's a huge industry, global industry surrounded with coffee, which is one of the reasons why sourcing good quality coffee is really important because as soon as, you know, these sort of global industries start to get really competitive, that's where shortcuts start being made, right? But one of the things that I think makes coffee such an interesting topic for an entire podcast episode is that there's been, I think, a lot of like news stories or news sort of commentaries that I've seen recently that have used the example of coffee research as the major talking point supporting the argument that scientists don't really know what they're talking about, right? Scientists can't really say anything because look at coffee. 
first it was bad for you and then it's good for you and then it's bad for you again and then it's good for you again and then it's only good for these people. And I mean, that gets my hackles raised for sure because I see there being in, in sort of science in general, and this is a slight tangent that I won't go down for too far. There is a challenge in communication between the academic labs where, you know, the people who are doing the research aren't necessarily trained as communicators, right? They're trained as researchers. They are trying to expand human knowledge. And then the institutes where they are that need to draw attention to their high quality research. So they'll do things like write press releases when a paper gets published in a high level journal. And then the media outlets that pick up those stories and don't necessarily represent the research that certainly are, very rarely would represent any nuance or important context that's reflected in the research and will represent a new paper, right? Picking up that press release as like new fact. And meanwhile, there's something called scientific consensus, which is very important in the scientific community. And that is where you look at the body of scientific research that is addressing a specific question from different angles and look for what the majority statement is, right? So what, what do most of these papers point to as the answer to that question, always accepting that there's going to be conflicting data? And conflicting data doesn't mean that a study was bad or that a study, you know, somebody made a mistake or that somebody is being, you know, fraudulent. Like, yes, when there's a scientist who loses their job over fraud, it's a huge news story. And it gives the implication, like, all scientists are, like, in the pocket of big industry and are just making up their data in order to advance their careers, that is maybe 0.0001% of scientists and they get caught and they lose their jobs. Having been in the scientific community, the vast majority of scientists are really just nerds who love learning things and creating these tests to be able to answer questions that have never been answered before and expand human knowledge. Like that is the only goal that they have in their lives. And they have to get grant funding to get it, right? There's, you know, there's all kinds of issues around, you know, inadequate funding. But the, you know, the scientists who are working, they just want to know more. That's their primary goal. They just are interested in this problem and they dedicate their entire lives to being able to find the answers to their questions. So scientific consensus is, you know, the representation of the research as a whole. And Sometimes there's not enough research on a specific question for consensus to be reached. And that's where we talk about things where you talk about things like emerging evidence, right? Like the you talk about a developing picture. But once you hit consensus, you're basically talking about something that's accepted as scientific fact. And with coffee, there has been a number of really well done big studies, meta-analyses just published over the last couple of years that have really clarified. I mean, they've really helped to finally reach scientific consensus. And so, yes, you know, in the decade or two decades leading up to these last couple of years, every time a paper has been published that says coffee is good or coffee is bad, that's been represented in the media as, now we know that coffee is good. Wait, now we know that coffee is bad. Wait, now I know that coffee is good. And in terms of that, like, oversimplification of communication that's being done through this sort of archaic process of, like, press releases and journalism, it's not helping to communicate how science is actually done. 
And so I wanted to talk about coffee as a, a way of both sharing that coffee has some really exciting health benefits for most people, but also by way of explaining that uh, when you're trying to answer a question in the literature, it takes a sort of threshold amount of research to be able to reach scientific consensus, which means, you know, definitively answering that question. And coffee has really only gotten there in the last couple of years. And there's still details that need to be filled out. So with that being said, there's been some really exciting research that has looked at health benefits of coffee in huge, you know, cohort studies, supported by mechanistic studies explaining why. And the I want to actually start with some of the whys. I want to start with what are the things in coffee that are exciting about coffee or unique to coffee that make it a health-promoting beverage with, again, there will be some caveats. And it turns out coffee really has two groups of chemicals in them that are responsible for the health benefits. So coffee contains over 800 different phytochemicals, mostly polyphenols, but also some diterpenes as well, that are basically antioxidants, right? So they're, you know, plant phytochemicals are the, also one of the main arguments for eating a lot of vegetables and fruit. It's also the main argument for coffee. So these antioxidants have a variety of important properties. They're anti-inflammatory, they're anti-cancer, they're cardioprotective, they're liver protective, and we're going to get into some more specifics. The other main class of beneficial chemicals in coffee actually contains some unique fiber types. So there's actually up to about half a gram of fiber per cup of coffee, which is kind of amazing when you consider it's also doesn't have any caloric content, at least black. You obviously can add lots of calories to coffee. But to have a beverage like that contain fiber is really unique. There are no other beverages, maybe short of something like chicory root, right? There probably are some others that where you would get some soluble coffee or some soluble fiber into the beverage. But, but coffee contains actually a fair amount of soluble fiber two main types. One's called galactomannans and the other one's called arubinogalactins. And these two types of fiber have been shown in a variety of studies to help increase levels of the very important probiotic bifidobacterium, as well as reduce the growth of the very horrible pathogenic E. coli and clostridium. They also have a bunch of other different important species that they can help to support the growth of. And they actually help increase production of short-chain fatty acids, which are used as a source of energy by our gut cells, but also get into our body and can be used as a source of energy by any of our cells and is well known to be sort of like the main health-promoting compound that our gut bacteria make. And so there's been some really exciting studies looking at the application of coffee in terms of the gut microbiome to show that is mediating at least some of the benefits of coffee consumption. So there was a study looking at why coffee might reduce diabetes risk and showing that coffee consumption, this was a rat study, was actually able to prevent uh, diet-related changes to the gut microbiome. So they were rats that were fed a diet that would normally make them obese, and when they fed those rats 
little teeny tiny cups of coffee. It's not, they weren't actually given cups of coffee. But when they were referring to the rat's coffee, they actually were able to I was show... on mute, but I laughed out loud and imagined <laughs> like little rat hands. Like right, holding the steaming cup of coffee, blowing yep. on it. Yep. I got yeah. the visual. Yep. Just wanted to let you know, because I felt like you had a joke and then it, it almost felt flat because they didn't react, but we were all there with you. I was just uh, on mute. You know how you know, it goes. No, it just, it entertained my brains. Really, that was good enough. <laughs> Also, the little image of a little, you know, little rat holding one of the little, little tiny mug. With his pinky out, for sure. Of course, yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they were actually able to show that the giving the rats coffee was able to protect against the sort of high-fat diet-induced shift in the microbiome, which is responsible for a lot of the health detriments or increased health risks associated with being obese. So that is like a really exciting, really exciting study explaining mechanisms behind some of the health benefits to coffee and attributing them to these two different types of fiber, which since I've already pronounced once, I think I'm good on that. There's going to be more big chemical names coming, so I'm going to save myself for that. The next one is probably the one that most people have heard of. They're called chlorogenic acids or CGAs. These are a type of polyphenol, so they're a very well-known antioxidant. And it's believed that through the intracellular antioxidant activity of chlorogenic acids that is probably the main contributor to coffee's health benefits is this main antioxidant. So there's been some interesting studies sort of expanding on the properties of chlorogenic acids. For example, they're chemoprotective, so they actually can help change the gene expression to help us metabolize different toxins, which is really cool. They also can impact our blood clotting. So that is potentially one of the main reasons why coffee consumption reduces risk of cardiovascular disease. And polyphenols are also have a really strong impact on gut microbiome composition. So this is something that I've talked about more in my you know, gut microbiome lectures that I've been doing over the last year and will certainly, it will have its whole, a whole chapter in my upcoming book that I'll, you know, let's finish at some point. But polyphenols actually change the composition of the gut microbiome in a good way, right? So polyphenols suppress the growth typically of pathogens while increasing the growth of probiotics and CGA is no exception. It increases the growth of bifidobacterium while decreasing the growth of clostridium so it's a coffee has this like double whammy in terms of or actually we're going to get to it triple whammy in terms of gut microbiome. So it's both the unique fiber in coffee as well as these polyphenols that are benefiting gut microbiome composition, which again is likely responsible for some of the health benefits. That's the likely mechanism. Some other health benefits would be mediated purely by the caffeine as well as the antioxidants in coffee. Another really important compound in coffee is, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, trigonaline. It is a, it's an interesting phytochemical. It's quite rich in green coffee beans, and it is known to be hypoglycemic, so it lowers blood sugar. It's known to be neuroprotective, so it's protecting the central nervous system against damage. It is known to protect against cancer. 
It's been known to impact estrogen levels. So it can act as a phytoestrogen. That's definitely considered more beneficial in women of perimenopause and postmenopausal age. And it's got some interesting antibacterial properties as well. There's also a class of chemicals called melanoidins, which actually coffee is one of the only sources of (laughs) melanoidins in the human diet. And these are interesting because they act like dietary fiber without actually being fiber. And so it's, this is actually a really, it's even more than that, you know, half. Can I ask a question that you're going to be shocked comes from me? Is this why people say that they go poop when they drink coffee? Do you know that's a thing? People talk about it all the time. Uh, Yeah, no, it's totally a thing. That actually (laughs) You're like, um, no, (laughs) Stacey. So it actually has to do with coffee stimulates a release of bile from the gallbladder, which acts as a laxative when not accompanied by food by relaxing the muscles. So this would be more... So actually, the, the melanoidins are actually thought to be potentially the reason why coffee reduces risk of colorectal cancer. So it's cool. But I think, yeah, I think the uh, why do I always have to poop 30 minutes after my cup of coffee in the morning? I think that effect is more directly related to the impact on peristalsis and the laxative effect of bile secretion in the mornings. Good to know. And interesting, it doesn't affect me that much, except if I Anyway, put a bunch of cream or something in it. So that totally makes sense because I don't have a gallbladder. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I, without going into TMI, do enjoy this normal property of coffee, which I'm sure most of our listeners do And we just lost everyone. (laughs) And everyone's like, and now I'm out. Tap out. We're not the only ones. And it's like one of those unspoken things that people whisper about. So I'm sure people appreciate the science about the why. I'm just, I'm going to. I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to feel good about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the story and I'm sticking to it. So I think it's important to sort of say, you know, not all phytochemicals are linked with only health benefits. And there are a couple in coffee that have potential cholesterol raising properties. These are called kawiol and cafestrol. Wait, cafestol. These are the aforementioned diterpenes, which is not a polyphenol. It's a different class of phytochemical. And what's interesting is they're like simultaneously associated with coffee that has a better flavor. So, right, like a darker coffee, a coffee where you're like brewing it with the grounds, like a Turkish coffee where it's like in a pot or a French press will have more of these compared to something like instant or filter coffee. So it's interesting because they have anti-cancer effects while also potentially raising cholesterol. So they've got this sort of like double-edged sword thing happening. So I feel like because we're going to get into some caveats, it's sort of important to sort of say like with antioxidant phytochemicals, you know, there's, for example, broccoli as a tangent, but it's a good example, literally has hundreds of different phytochemicals in it, you know, almost all of which are associated with reduced inflammation. You know, they lower risk of cancer. They're cardioprotective. They, you know, can reduce diabetes risk, right? They've got all of these benefits. And then there's four that are the opposite, right? They're inflammatory and increased cancer risk. So when you consider broccoli as a whole food, you are getting a 
you know, great health promoting food, even though there's these four, four phytochemicals in it that if you were to concentrate just those would be really bad and toxic for you. But in the context of the whole food where you're getting hundreds that are beneficial, your cost benefit analysis is really obvious. Like the benefit is just amazing. So coffee is sort of similar in the sense that there are some of these compounds that potentially have this effect of raising cholesterol, even though coffee on the whole reduces cardiovascular disease risk, which seems like an excellent time to sort of segue into what are the health benefits of coffee? Okay, there's like fiber and all of these phytochemicals. What is the impact of actually just drinking that comfort in a cup every morning? So this is where the landmark studies have really, really solidified coffee as a health-promoting beverage for most people. And there was a pair of studies just published, I think we're going on coming up to two years now, that were these huge meta-analyses and showed that coffee consumption reduced what's called all-cause mortality. We've talked about all-cause mortality on the show before, but as a refresher, it is a general marker of health and longevity. So what they do is they take a group of people, they, you know, figure out, they'll do this really sophisticated statistical analysis where they basically control for any other factor. So they're controlling for whether or not these people are smoking, whether or not they're overweight, whether or not they eat a healthy diet, whether or not they're active, right? All of these other things that we know are impacting health, and those are all controlled for statistically. And then the sliding scale is how much coffee are they drinking? So are they drinking no coffee, you know, a cup a week, a cup a day, two cups a day, three cups a day? They were able to go up to over seven cups a day looking at this this cohort because a meta-analysis pools data from a bunch of other studies and reanalyzes all of the data from all of these different studies with a typically a fairly high threshold for data quality in order to be included. And so what they were able to show is even at the highest level of consumption, there is this reduced risk of all-cause mortality. So when you're following this group of people over, you know, most of these types of studies will look at 10 years, some will look at 20 or 30, looking at how many people die from any cause, right? So that is accidental, that's acute illness, chronic illness, old age. It gives you this very general picture of how healthy a population is because even an accidental death is sort of related typically to either mental health challenges or risk-taking behavior, right? Things like DUIs, right? Like those things are all captured under accidental death. So it still gives you a comprehensive picture of how healthy, right? You're looking at infection, looking at chronic illness, looking at old age. You get this like overall measurement of how healthy are these people on average and how long do they live on average. So it's a really great measurement for whether or not something is good or bad, right? Does it impact all-cause mortality? And then from there, you get more granular, right? Does it impact cardiovascular disease, cancer? And we're going to get there. So the best or sort of like optimal dose of coffee in this study was found to be three cups of coffee per day. And three cups of coffee per day reduced risk of all-cause mortality by 17%. So to put that into what is, context. I'm sorry, before you move forward, what is a cup? Is that eight ounces? It's an eight ounce cup. Okay. So most people would, I mean, I start every morning with a cup of coffee, but it's really two cups. 
And do you know this? And I'm throwing this at you, and you've had no chance to prepare for it. If water osmosis decaf counts as well, osmosis um, might not be the right word. Do you know what I'm talking about when they do yes. the decaf? Okay. So these the, these particular researchers also they separated out caffeinated and decaffeinated coffee. Now under decaffeinated coffee, there was no separation in terms of decaffeination method. So with decaffeinated coffee, right, like you can catch the formalin decaffeination, which has trace amounts of formaldehyde left in the decaf. So that would be captured in the same as like Swiss water decaffeinated. But, but what's interesting about that, so three cups a day of coffee, it didn't matter if it was caffeinated or decaf. So that's really interesting because some of the other health benefits of coffee, it really does matter. But this like big picture showed that decaffeinated coffee was almost as good as caffeinated. So that implies that it is like the fiber and the phytonutrients and not the caffeine in the coffee that are having the impact. That also, if we're going to make the argument for it being the antioxidant phytochemicals in the coffee and the unique fiber types in the coffee or the unique fiber-like non-fiber in coffee that are having these benefits, then that's also another strong argument for seeking high-quality coffee because a high-quality coffee can have four or five times more antioxidants than a low-quality coffee. This podcast is sponsored by iHerb, where you can find products ranging from snacks and supplements to baby and sustainability supplies. Get 22% off with code WHOLEVIEW. Every product iHerb sells is stored and shipped exclusively by iHerb, there are no third-party sellers, to over 185 countries, and you'll get free shipping in the U.S. on purchases over $20. We all have our favorite grocery store, and now you can have your go-to online health store. I'm talking vitamins, fish oil, skincare, makeup, bath, protein powders, spices, sports supplements, and more. With over 24 a million reviews and over a million five-star ratings, iHerb has helped over 11 million customers find the best products for them. And I find their prices are often less than competitors. Some of the things that we order from there are the Now Foods Arnica Soothing Massage Oil, perfect for tired feet and muscles at the end of the day. They have trace minerals to add back into your filtered water. Calm Magnesium Supplements, and I got these new Chromega, I think it's pronounced, uh, fish oil squeezable packets that are perfect for travel. It's time to get your health in check with iHerb. Our listeners get 22% off your first order when you use code WHOLEVIEW at iHerb.com. That's 22% off your first order at iHerb.com, promo code WHOLEVIEW. Choose iHerb because wellness matters. This podcast is sponsored by Vegamore. And let me tell you my new testimonial. Another long hauler symptom I had was hair loss and I started using Vegamore to stop shedding, but it's been so good for my hair. I started seeing a new hairstylist and she was so impressed with my hair health. It made me giddy. She said that my ends were hydrated, not dead at all, and that she could see a ton of new growth. She told her partner about it. And the next time I went in to take kiddo for a haircut, she was asking me all about it too. She was postpartum and looking for something for herself and had looked into it and said how legit it looked. Y'all, 
I'm not kidding. Okay. Do not sleep on these incredible products. Everyone that tries them like messages me and is like, I can't believe it. You're so right. I love this stuff. I personally am obsessed. I'm like a walking in-person infomercial. They are the cleanest ingredients I can find with proven results. It's the only one that meets my standards. Clinically tested to improve density 52%, reduce shedding by 76%, and 91% of customers say they saw visibly thicker hair with Vegamore in just three months. No harmful chemicals, cruelty-free, and they never contain parabens. I personally use the Grow Revitalizing Shampoo and Conditioner Foundation Kit that has the clarifying serum in it, as well as their dry shampoo. It all smells so good using only fruit oils, no synthetic fragrances. I put all my favorites for you at vegamore.com slash wholeview, where you'll also be able to get 20% off. And there is no risk when you're trying because they have a 90-day money-back guarantee. Get the hair you have always wanted with Vegamore. Go to vegamore.com slash wholeview and use code wholeview to save 20% on your first order. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash wholeview, code wholeview to save 20% at vegamore.com slash wholeview. I think that's similar to tea and food and everything else that we talk about, right? There's more from nutrients and soil to pesticides on it. All of those things are definitely going to play into, I'm sure, a lot of these analysis that make it difficult to determine what really is the triggering mechanism for what is affecting things positively and negatively. So I like the idea personally of taking all of those potential harmful things and neutralizing it as much as possible. And that's why we asked Clean Coffee Company to partner with us on this show, because we want to offer a solution to avoiding some of those more potentially harmful things. Not sacrificing taste, which sounds <laughs> What's like the they most... asked me to say it because <laughs> it sounded super cheesy. It did. But I mean it. I mean it. <laughs> it totally sounded like I was given a line to read in a commercial right there. I, en- I enjoyed. <laughs> okay, back to the nerd time. So all cause mortality as this like big picture look at how, health a pop- how healthy a population is, let's get into some of the more, you know, specific chronic illnesses that are affecting Western countries. So cardiovascular disease, Stacey, you're going to really like this. So there is a strong reduction in coffee consumers. Again, we're looking at about three cups a day of cardiovascular disease, including a 19% reduced risk of cardiovascular disease in general, 16% reduced risk of coronary heart disease, and a 30% reduced risk of stroke, which is very cool. And guess who benefits the most? I'm going to guess women. Yeah, it's because it's bolded in my notes. (laughs) Yes. So this is, I, you know, I feel like so often we're talking about things that right? Which is often done right on male mice or rats, right? That's We have a lot more research that's done in men. And that's because the estrus cycle adds this point of variability in women that make women more challenging to study because you have to sort of sync estrus cycles in order to be, sometimes be able to tease out a signal. So a lot of research is done in men and not women, which is problematic because there's Things like, you know, we've talked about, I'm not a big supporter at all 
of the ketogenic diet. And one of the reasons is in women, it's been shown to cause amenorrhea, right? Loss of periods, which <laughs> implies infertility. It has all of these impacts on female hormones that if you have a very male-centric view in terms of the health impact of something because the science is done more in men than in women, you miss that. And then you end up promoting something. I mean, I don't support keto for most men either, but you end up making this extrapolation that something might be beneficial for women when it's really only beneficial for men. This is really exciting because we're able to tease out these differences in these huge population studies and show that women actually benefit more from coffee consumption from a cardiovascular disease risk perspective than men, which is very cool. So what's interesting, though, is that there's also this, this impact of caffeine on blood pressure. And so this is an interesting, like, side note that when you have a caffeinated beverage, your blood pressure goes up. There is blood, high blood pressure is sort of like an accepted risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So it's this interesting thing. If coffee increases blood pressure and blood pressure increases risk of cardiovascular disease, how does coffee reduce cardiovascular disease risk and reduce mortality from cardiovascular disease, which by the way, I should say, men and women benefit equally on the lower mortality part of the relationship between coffee and cardiovascular disease. And this is like a how, how it seems counterintuitive that something that would increase blood pressure would reduce cardiovascular disease risk. And how that works is basically still an unanswered question in this entire field of research. So and I, it's just interesting. I think for me, I wonder also, I know we're going to touch on it, how much of that is cortisol related and how people are affected, right? Because different people, you and I, for example, respond to coffee completely differently. And I ask about Swiss water decaf, not water osmosis decaf, because that's what I drink if I'm going to have any more than just a morning cup, because my body cannot, I'll start jittering and I don't feel good. And like, I cannot do caffeine, whereas you and Matt metabolize it completely differently. And you yeah. can do multiple cups and it helps you and blah, blah, blah. I wonder if they've done an analysis on the people who drink more coffee that have these benefits and reduction of these things. If, for example, that's because those people are drinking less soda. Do you know what I'm saying? I think about, yeah. I know a lot of people in my corporate world who they would either reach for a soda in the afternoon or a second cup of coffee. And the difference that has in the amount of sugar and that kind of stuff might be playing a factor as well. So I, I would have to go back and look at ex the methodology on this paper specifically, but soda consumption is typically accounted for in these types of analyses as is sugar consumption, a number of, you know, servings of vegetables. When they're looking at things like cancer and cardiovascular disease, they'll correct for like servings of red meat. Like they, they typically get very granular in their statistical accounting for other known contributors to disease risk. So I would say it's very typical to account for soda consumption. I'm not like 100% certain if this paper did it, but I'd be surprised if they didn't. Yeah, I can see Which that. Yeah, I can think I can see that in a paper they statistically could slash makes the most sense slash trying not mm -hmm. to use the word should do that. But I think as 
like a normal person thinking about things, then imagine how much bigger the number would be if you didn't account for that too. You know what I mean? Like if you're, if you know someone who always has an afternoon soda, helping them switch to coffee or in my case, I sometimes do matcha because it has less caffeine. If I really need to pick me up, I'll do that instead of, you know, a soda with caffeine. Yeah. The benefit of that, helping someone just make that one switch is incredible. An excellent opportunity to mention that those energy dips in the afternoon are typically related to chronic stress and poor sleep quality or quantity. So there's, yes, I 100% agree that switching to something like a, you know, small cup of coffee or, you know, a small cup of tea, something like that in the afternoon is obviously better than a soda or a candy bar or any of those other crutches. But we're still talking about a crutch even when we're choosing that cup of coffee in the afternoon. So and and not to say that I'm speaking from a high place of I have no stress and I never have an energy dip in the afternoon because that is not what I'm saying at all. I am absolutely a person who has to be incredibly vigilant about all of my behaviors related to stress management. And I would say that the vast majority of the time, room for improvement is a really excellent way to describe how I'm managing my stress. So, you know, I'm definitely a person who does experience those energy dips in the afternoon, at least relatively frequently, not all the time. So, so you know, so, yeah, with that, all of those caveats, you know, do know that an energy dip in the afternoon is not normal. And it is definitely a sign of something that could be improved upon in terms of typically lifestyle. I think it's a good thing to watch out for with yourself as well. I think it's one thing if you're, you know, you didn't have a good night's sleep or, you know, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, we hear often when we say those kinds of things from new moms, well, but I can't get good sleep, girl. You are feeding human life or maybe it's not even a girl maybe you adopted and man you're putting little ones forward and creating life sometimes sleep is just not going to happen for a while just cue up the rest of your lifestyle factors as much as you can and then as soon as you're able to get your kids sleeping get back to your regular schedule it's not to say that the you know a newborn is going to ruin you but these things exist and are triggers for us to think about, oh, what is my body trying to tell me? So good point all around. I Woo-hoo. fully interrupted you. It wasn't even just a little bit of a tangent. <laughs> Please proceed. Uh, no, I think it was a worthwhile, I think it was a worthwhile tangent. All right. So diabetes, drinking coffee reduces risk of type 2 diabetes by about 30%. And this is another effect that's seen in both caffeinated and decaffeinated. Coffee can also help reduce risk of other metabolic diseases, including metabolic syndrome, which is that wonderful mix of prediabetes or type 2 diabetes with obesity and cardiovascular disease risk factors. Kidney stones can also be reduced or the risk can be reduced with high co- higher coffee consumption. Again, we're sort of talking three cups a day is sort of optimal here. And so can gout. So this is another like the antioxidants that coffee seem to be beneficial. Here's one that is specifically to caffeinated coffee, and that is the reduced risk of neurological diseases. The biggest body of scientific literature is with Parkinson's disease, showing that coffee consumption reduces risk of Parkinson's. 
but it also there's now here's we're talking about emerging evidence. We still would love to see more data on this showing that it can reduce risk for depression and other cognitive disorders, including Alzheimer's disease. So there is good data with Parkinson's and there is enough you know, preliminary data to make start making some statements on some other neurological and mental health challenges. But again, you know, more data would be interesting here. And this seems to be attributable to the double whammy of higher antioxidants, but also caffeine increases blood circulation to the brain. And so that's helping to bring a lot of, right, fresh nutrients, right, more oxygen, more energy molecules, and things like the antioxidants in the coffee that you're consuming at the same time to the brain. And that is what is thought to be driving that mechanism. There's, thingly some great hepatoprotective effects of coffee, which means protective to the liver. So it reduces risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease by 29%, liver fibrosis by 27%, and cirrhosis by 39%. And that is actually at the one cup a day level. Coffee is also very good for gallbladder health and higher consumers. So consuming at least two cups a day reduces risk for gallstones. And that's likely, you know, attributable to the effect that I've sort of already mentioned of coffee sort of stimulating gallbladder contraction. So that full emptying of the gallbladder uh, with meals is very helpful. So it's one of the reasons also why eating distinct meals during the day instead of grazing is much better for gallbladder health. That sort of fits into that whole picture. And then I, I think cancer is sort of the last one that I pulled together some statistics for. So what's interesting about cancer is that so many things, we have certain cancers where we can detect a signal and other cancers where we maybe can't. So with cancer, there is in general about an 18% reduced chance of being diagnosed with cancer in high coffee drinkers compared to no coffee drinkers. And the cancers that have been found to respond to coffee consumption include prostate cancer, endometrial cancer, melanoma, oral cancer, leukemia, non-melanoma skin cancer, and liver cancer. So this is very common with cancer research when we're drawing links between cancer and any kind of dietary factor, exposures, lifestyle factor. There is an increased risk with high consumption of coffee and certain cancers, most notably lung cancer. And this seems to be something that is dependent on smoking status. So it's the coffee smoking combo that increases the risk of lung cancer beyond just smoking by itself. So that is, it's a very sm small effect, about a 2% effect in non-smokers. And, and so that's a really interesting piece there. So you taken all together, what we are seeing is generally some really impressive health benefits to regular coffee consumption. Most of those effects are sort of optimized at the two to three cups a day. Some of those effects are seen at one cup of day. And all of those effects are not improved upon beyond three cups a day. So even though you're still seeing reduced all-cause mortality at seven cups a day, it's not as good an effect as at three cups a day. And that might be related to some of the caveats. So I think with coffee consumption, it's really important to recognize that coffee does not work for everybody. 
And there are some people who would do better to look to other hot beverages, whether that's tea or herbal teas, right, to look to other sources of some of these, you know, types of beneficial phytochemicals. One is the idea of people with hypercholesteremia. So because of these diter beans that can increase cholesterol, and this is one of those things that is, there's not consensus on this point exactly, because we see that coffee consumption transiently increases blood pressure, that some of the compounds can increase the lipid profile, but overall it's decreasing risk of cardiovascular disease. So where the scientific community is fallen down now is that if you have familial hypercholesteremia, it's probably better to avoid coffee. If you have high coffee consumption, it's definitely something to self-experiment with. Try removing coffee and see if your cholesterol normalizes. It's unclear how big of an effect coffee consumption has on cholesterol in people without familial hypercholesteremia, given all of the other cardioprotective effects. So definitely a talk to your doctor. And the last caveat is people with autoimmune disease. There's, you know, caffeine itself is sort of generally anti-inflammatory. There's lots of anti-inflammatory antioxidants in coffee, but there's also a couple, you know, as I mentioned, right, there's these pros and cons. There's a couple of phytochemicals that may increase inflammation. And also in a non-high quality coffee, there can be a lot of, right, like mycotoxins dramatically increase the inflammation. So fungal toxins. So in autoimmune research with coffee, there seems to be some people with autoimmune disease for which coffee is anti-inflammatory and reduces inflammation and others for which it's inflammatory and it increases inflammation. And this may be related to caffeine metabolism genes. It may be related to autoimmune disease risk genes. It may be related to coffee quality. So because of this research, we talked earlier this year in the updates to the autoimmune protocol that coffee is still eliminated initially on the autoimmune protocol but it's moved to a phase one reintroduction because for some people it's going to actually be beneficial and anti-inflammatory. Until that research is better, sort of more robust, right? And there's just more data and we can understand better whether or not it's a specific gene that's driving this effect or if it's coffee quality. If it's coffee quality, then we just make this emphasis that if you're, you know, when you're on the AIP, you drink high quality coffee. But until we know definitively what's potentially driving the effect of coffee being inflammatory for some autoimmune disease sufferers. That's why it's eliminated on the AIP. So I, I think those caveats in general basically are a, you know, talk to your doctor if you have, you know, a health condition that might mean that high coffee consumption and or high caffeine consumption are not going to benefit you, as well as, you know, be critical in your self-reflection. Overall, the body of scientific literature shows the vast majority of us can benefit from two or three cups of coffee a day, especially if that coffee is a high antioxidant, high phytochemical, right? Basically meaning a high quality coffee. But as is, you know, for everything that we talk about on this podcast, 
there is this thing called bioindividuality, which means that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. So we always encourage you to engage with functional integrative medicine and to be critical, right? Self-experiment and be willing to reevaluate when things are not working for you. And so this is one of those areas where we highly recommend, you know, just being self-reflective on whether or not that morning cup of coffee or two or three is benefiting you versus maybe it's time to switch to a high quality cup of coffee, but reevaluate whether or not it's, you know, time to switch to decaf or time to switch to a different beverage altogether. I hope not because although there are a small amount of people who don't like coffee, I'm assuming that they've not listened to the show all the way through. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be sharing Matt's take and perspective, a caffeine junkie and the person who picked this show to revisit and someone who also has been involved in what we have going on in our lives right now that has brought this back up for us. Spoiler alert, one of our kids had a panic attack after having caffeine at school. And we'll dive into that over on patreon.com slash the whole view. I think it's interesting to see three different perspectives and how caffeine metabolizes differently for three different people. So hopefully you've enjoyed this show. And if you'd like to support it, the Patreon is the best place to do that over at patreon.com slash the whole view. You can also support the show. I would appreciate so much if you could go give a review in whatever podcast app you're listening. Not just like hitting the five stars, which is amazing and great. And I appreciate it so much. But also, you know, give us the thoughts on one of your recent favorite shows lately. It just takes a minute and really helps other people find the show when you leave a review. So I genuinely, wholeheartedly, I wish that I could respond to those to tell you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much when you leave them. And if you'd like to keep in touch, you can find me on Instagram and now updated to at Real Stacy Talk. And of course, as always, we put a list of resources into the show notes for you at realeverything.com. Lastly, I want to thank you so much for tuning in today. As always, we appreciate your willingness to be open to grow through your own personal changes. I know the idea of reducing caffeine and alcohol is not one that anyone wants to sign up for. It sounds daunting. I wouldn't be sharing if I didn't think it was worthwhile, both from a health and wellness perspective. So no, no one is perfect. Give yourself grace because in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can become better versions of ourselves. Thanks. Have a great week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.